John, it's 1 John, an epistle near the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 1, I'd like to read a few verses from there that have great impact, especially on the latter part of the sermon. And I'd like to pray before I read it. Lord, uh, I guess teach us uh, something new today. Something that if we've heard it before and we've forgotten, remind us of it. A new help. And, um, and, and, and just so that we can be the people you want us to be. Amen. So 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. First verse of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You may be seated. I'm going to read a lot. It's going to appear like I'm reading a lot from the manuscript because I don't want to get off. I haven't practiced, read this enough. I blame Brian Monsma because he's always pressuring me to get here early, get here on time, and I would have read, read it again uh, had... Um, not been. He's looking around. What, what gives with this guy? So I'll apologize in advance if it seems like he's married to the manuscript. I, I, I will be. I think this is going to be the last of the five sermons I've done in what became a series I didn't intend it to be. And the series is called, at least on the internet, God's Basic Commands for General and particular obedience. The first was called fill the earth. Then came, can we never be sure of what God wants? The third one was, should you try to find a spouse? And the fourth was, am I required to work and rest? Today's is, if you are forgiven, then why should you confess your sins? And my premise all along has been that in Genesis, we believe, I would think, that God gives mankind his purpose, its purpose, our purpose. He tells us what he wants. Indeed, every person 
on earth would be content if he just did the things God told him to do. That is it. Be and do what God told me to be and do. It's it's the way to fulfillment. Yet too often, people, they hear commands, they hear especially these seminal commands in Genesis as a purpose for mankind, but they kind of excuse themselves from fulfilling those commands. It's as if because they are a part of mankind that they are somehow obeying the command as a human participant, simply by existing, but they excuse themselves from actually having to perform them. They approach these Genesis from the beginning commands, believing that what is good for mankind as a whole is not necessarily good for me. And I don't think that's how it works. That's not how God is. Today we'll be presented with what I believe to be another garden command. And this one was introduced because of sin. Adam's sin was the great staining and ruining of us all. All of mankind, in general, became fallen and sinful, but each of us individually did so as well. Adam, the first man, our father, infected the rest of us. Many thousands of years later, Paul wrote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 and surrounding verses. Mankind is fallen, and each man is fallen. Each needs to be picked, picked back up, and mankind needs to be picked up. So let's take a look at Genesis now. You got to turn there. Genesis chapter 3. Well, you don't got to turn there. I encourage you to turn there. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? We'll stop there. There, 
Adam's sin. He ate of the one tree forbidden to him. Now, that sounds a little Sunday school-ish, right? But there's deepness in what transpired there. And I believe the soundest explanation of Adam's sin, of what he did, is that he wanted, in the moment, to determine right and wrong for himself. He wanted to determine right and wrong for himself. I I believe that is the key of verse 22, if you look down a little further, where it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, this is what we're going to do. I think we have to understand that. Verse 22 is merely the triune God deciding to limit the harm mankind would begin to do because of his self-determination. I will decide right and wrong. It's self-determination. So God expelled them, us, from the garden so as not to live forever, but also he expelled us to frustrate our purposes, our designed purposes. Now this may sound strange to your ears, but thankfully... Adam and Eve experienced guilt because of their sin. Thankfully. Go back to verse 10. It says, they knew that they had done evil. Verse, oh, sorry. Um, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 7 says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. What does that all mean? Then their eyes were opened. They weren't created physically blind, obviously, prior to eating. They weren't groping around. Oh, this is a giraffe, and this is... That's not how it was. They were aware of their surroundings. The eyes of their heart was what became blind. The inner man could see things that he couldn't previously see. And this came with their sin. With their new revelation that opened their eyes, they lost something. They lost their innocence. One would be correct, in fact, to say that this opening of their eyes made it difficult for them to see what was important. Ironic. Their eyes were opened, and now it was more difficult to see. It blinded them. You and I have never experienced innocence in the same way our first father and mother had. However, it is equally true that they had never experienced forgiveness to the measure we have. We'll return, we'll return to that. 
Adam and Eve, they attempted, okay, at first to overcome their problem of sin and guilt and shame by covering their their loins with leaves from, from a fig tree. Again, that sounds a little Sunday schoolish, right? But it should be taught in Sunday school, and it is true. But the, the couple, Adam and Eve, they will soon find out that nothing people can do for sins. There's nothing we can do for sins that will take away our guilt. No. The solution to sin and guilt comes from God. We only have the problem. No solution. He has the solution. God had summoned them to appear before him. Where are you? He asks in verse 9. Of course, the Lord knows all that was done, and he listens to them as they blame one another, blame the serpent. They are guilty. There are no excuses or apologies or good deeds or fig leaves that can take away their guilt. They must suffer punishment. They must, in fact, die. This is the first part of today's Genesis command, the seminal command. It's this, first part, the actions of man cannot purchase forgiveness and remove guilt. Fallen man is unable. Yet, we have learned God so loved the world. Yes. Wait on that. Here's what he told them. And this is the second part of God's garden command. It's found in verse 15. God told them he would bring someone into their existence, into humanity, the seed of the woman, he called it. And she would have this male offspring, the woman would. And, this, and that son would oppose or treat like an enemy Satan and all those who would continue to live comfortably in the sin of Adam. They, he would be at enmity with them. So the command is, sinful man is unable to save himself, but God will provide a deliverer. Ever since Eden, man has known that. Man has left with that message. Of course, we know who this promised child is, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, those details would come over time prophetically and then ultimately be realized in history at the incarnation, the baptism, transfiguration, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And each of those, in each of those, God the Father conveyed to his people how lovely his son was to him. So the command to Adam and Eve and mankind was, is, you cannot save yourself. 
but there is a Savior who can save you from sin and guilt. He is the victor over sin, Satan, and death. Now we see the dynamic play out in Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their guilt and shame. They determined, let's hide, right? Let's cover ourselves. It was insufficient. They were not going to be permitted to walk around as if nothing were wrong in their sewn-together fig-leaf shorts. Thankfully, God would provide his Savior. But for the moment, he gives them for the moment, he gives them more suitable covering for their guilt and shame. More suitable to him, at least. Which is what matters most. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, there's disagreement on whether we are to read into there the sacrifice of an animal to cover sins because in order to get the skin covering of the animal they had God would have had to kill the animal and shed its blood but it's not where we're going earlier I said thankfully Adam and Eve experienced guilt how did that rub you and I said uh, thankfully because I don't, I don't think we like the feeling of guilt. Do we? No. <laughs> but guilt is a fact that points to you or me as the responsible one for committing sin. That's what guilt does. It blames us. It blames you for something you did. Guilt is synonymous with blame. I have done wrong. I am responsible. I am guilty. I know for many people, and I'm not just talking about other people, but for many people, guilt is oppressive. Oppressive. I think it's the same for all of us to some degree, even as Christians. Guilt is the overcast sky in your life. It marks you with shame. If it is not removed, depression sets in. With loads of guilt, we can become melancholy. Yet, guilt is good. And if it produces, it is good if it produces a godly sorrow. If guilt produces a godly sorrow for you, your gray skies contain the hope that the sun will break through at some point soon. But not all people experience guilt that way. 
if your sin, which caused you guilt, has produced what the Scripture would call worldly sorrow, with no hope of clearing skies, then condemnation is all you anticipate. And let me, let me suggest to you, you got to deal with that. Those gray skies in your mind will never change unless it begins to rain, of course. Or, what does sinful man do? You harden yourself to ignore the weather altogether. So sin is bad. Sin hopefully causes guilt. We need sin and guilt to trouble us. And where we go from there is crucial for peace. It's crucial. Fig leaves or God's covering. That's our choice. Not, what can I do? That's fig leaves. How can I make this right? That's fig leaves. Or God's covering. And it's by the latter. It's by God's covering that we are introduced to the beauty of Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29b. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is beautiful and wonderfully helpful for the sinner who responds to him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, hear that, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's my good news. Adam and Eve needed a savior, someone to provide the payment against the entire debt of their sins. Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood was that payment. And we need him as our savior too, for we too have lived self-determined lives. In John 2.2, 1 John 2.2, the apostle John tells us that Jesus is payment for sins of the whole world. It was not only the gospel to Adam and Eve, but to you and me and our children. So we find forgiveness paid by him. John uses the word propitiation in verse 2 of 1 John 2 which means that by punishing Jesus the Son with his blood applied to our account, we find forgiveness. God's wrath was appeased toward you and me because Jesus took it. I've got a portion of... uh, illustration that you might find helpful from H.A. Ironside, a book called Holiness, 
the false and the true. He said, think of it like this. A man is in debt to another who has again and again demanded payment. Being unable to pay, and that because he was unwisely, he has unwisely wasted his subsistence, and this known to his creditor that he's not used his money wisely, this known to his creditor, the creditor becomes unhappy by the debtor's response of not being able to pay and always looking for an excuse, a way. The debtor desires to avoid him after a time. But his conscience is uneasy. His conscience is defiled. He knows well he is blameworthy. And yet he is incapable of writing the matter between he and the one he owes. But another person appears who, on the debtor's behalf, settles the claim in the fullest manner and hands to the troubled one, the debtor, a receipt for it all. Here, you're paid in full. You don't owe him anymore. Is he now afraid to meet the other person? Does he shrink away from facing him? Not at all. And why? Because he has now a perfect or a purged conscience in regard to the matter that once exercised him. Our own Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 6, asks two questions there that help explain what Jesus was able to accomplish to secure people's forgiveness. Question and answer 16 says this, Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Human. The answer is God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could never pay for others. Question and answer 17. The next question says, why must the mediator also be true God? And the answer is, so that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Oh, the beauty that, of what Jesus did for us. God the Son, what a wonderful Savior. So Christian, you are forgiven because Jesus paid your debt. Where does it leave you? If you're miserable, if you're guilt-ridden, you are not getting this. You are not getting what I'm about to tell you at the end of the sermon here. If you are forgiven, then why should you confess your sins? Well, we should. What is the natural state of a person 
before Jesus begins a work in him or her, what were we like? The Bible calls it the old man or your former self. What was that condition? Well, we got it from Adam. Walter Walter Marshall says that Adam gave us only the furnishings to practice sin. Sin is our comfort. It is, the, it is natural for the sons of Adam, right, and the daughters of Eve to go about life with little thought of God. Even the Christian, it's easy to go about life with very little thought to God. But for the non-believer and for the guilt-ridden Christian, we give little thought to God because those, those thoughts seem so uninviting. He seems uninviting because we're carrying this load of guilt. For the sinner, we know, life remains about them, not about God. For the Christian who feels loaded with guilt, they need to realize that they're still treating life as if it is about them or is up to them. Whereas Jesus Christ... Unlike Adam, or the second Adam, whom the Apostle Paul calls the second Adam, from him, Marshall says, we are furnished with all means necessary for the practice of holiness. And if holiness sounds like a dry, uh, sterile word that you want nothing to do with, then you've been taught wrong. For the Christian, inside, there's a spiritual prodding to want God's approval. That's a good thing. We want him to be pleased with us. As, we, as a young child wants his dad to be pleased. We find delight in obedience and twinges of guilt when we disobey. If they're more than twinges, sometimes heavy twinges, repeated twinges, until we turn the right direction. Indeed, when we practice sin, okay, if we don't confess our sins to Him, including in worship, and if we don't repent, we feel pretty despicable. Reoccurring sin that you give into again and again, you feel despicable. You are dejected. That's usually a good sign that the Holy Spirit is convicting our conscience with guilt for defying the best lover of our soul. And for walking in the flesh rather than in the Spirit of God, Romans 8 and many other places. Oh, you're not left alone back there, you sinner, you Christian sinner. We're not way out ahead of you. Not at all. We suffer these same things, but maybe due to maturity or experience, we've learned how to turn it around. 
where to go immediately. John Kelvin, he, he reflects this way, we are very far from being perfectly righteous. Nay, that we contract new guilt daily. And that, yet there is a remedy for reconciling us to God if we flee to Christ. If we flee to Christ. What would prevent you from fleeing to Christ if you're loaded with guilt? I know. You think fig leaves are still an option. No, that, that hasn't been an option ever. Fig leaves are not an option. Flee to Christ, Christian. Do not delay. And, and flee to him often, okay? Even before the temptation sprouts up into a seedling. Pray to him. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Ask him to spray herbicide immediately if you sense something in the works that would offend him. Ask him to mortify your sin. Walk this life with him. Depend wholly on his spirit. Confess to the Lord your illegitimate longings. It's not like he doesn't know. And ask him to root them out, even though you find pleasure in them. Admit that. Be transparent. What's the alternative? Gray skies. It's going to rain. Nothing ever changes. Keep giving in to temptation, I guess. Sin, guilt. We can always make life more about us than about him. We're, that's our natural state. That's Adam's furnishings. It comes natural. But things go badly when you disregard Christ's furnishings. And Christ Jesus has given us different means of grace, different avenues in which we apply ourselves to him in a weekly cycle. He has given them, given them to you for your support. He is here for your support and your change. What's more, as Calvin is quoted in the bulletin, and I think you'll agree with this, hell, hell reigns where the conscience has no peace with God. Hell reigns where the conscience has no peace with God. Look, Jesus Christ Desire is to pay the debt for man's sins to be forgiven, but also for men to be cleansed of their sin. Take a look there at 1 John 1, 5 through 10. I just want to repeat that. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That sounds pretty devastating. Who wouldn't be guilty? Who wouldn't feel unable? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The last part of that we we often say in church worship, before time of confession, it's a serious time, right? Right? When you should be sober and contrite, why do we do it? If we are forgiven by God based upon the Savior's work, then why confess our sins? Do we even need to feel guilt when we do wrong? Why care at all about sin? We confess our sins because we still need our sins forgiven and cleansed. Hear that. This is, the, this is the turning on the hinge. We confess our sins because we still need our sins forgiven and cleansed. Hmm. Jesus Christ, okay, don't run, run away from me. Jesus Christ does not need to die again. He will not shed his blood again. However, he is currently active as the high priest of heaven, as John points out in the next verses. 1 John 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus, Christian, is our advocate in heaven. This is the grand work he has set himself to accomplish there. He represents us to the Father, and his blood is applied to our forgiveness. So we should regularly, I mean regularly, put our faith in him to do this work, this work for us and in us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, since, we have, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That means you're not walking away ignoring the weather. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow means you're waiting for that sun to break through and you're going to him as your high priest. You and I, we know there are many times we need help. Actually, always we need help. We are tempted. We sin. Jesus, our high priest, is vital for our success. 
three paragraphs. John Calvin wrote, Christ is our advocate, for he appears before God for this end, that he may exercise toward us the power and efficacy of his sacrifice. The intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. That God then does not impute to us our sins, this comes to us because he has regard to Christ as intercessor. And that is exactly where the apostle goes in 1 John 2, 1, where he repeats the word advocate. John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, yeah. If you are forgiven and have become one of Christ's, you should still confess your sins to your advocate. Jesus said one time, uh, I don't remember who he was speaking to, maybe all the disciples, I don't know who responded, but he said um, that the one who has been bathed already only needs his feet washed, okay? And this is the idea that many theologians feel is applied to this situation. Though we are Christians, we have been bathed, but we still need our feet washed. So, it's the high priest who does that. Christ the Savior is our advocate who serves before the Father. You cannot go on with life without carrying on and recognizing his place. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would deal with us, tend to us. You know our needs. You know, you know who's listening wholeheartedly and who's avoiding to hear if they are indeed avoiding to hear what's been preached. You know who's glazed over and who's locked in. I just pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd work in each of us. Take us where we are to a better place. In Jesus' name, amen.